happy Saturday. It's August 27th, 2022, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker. And I'm Michael Haney. And we are two of your deputy editors here at Airmail. Ashley, but how's it going over there? <laughs> Michael, you have me on. This is basically my first full day here. And let me tell you, it is something out of Mr. Bean. It's like everything has gone wrong. Nothing too major, but a lot of absolute ridiculous things. Like there was a purse that spilled in the middle of the street. There was a faucet in a restaurant bathroom that somehow mysteriously was broken while I was washing my hands. It's just like everything has happened. Hilarious things have gone wrong. Anyway, I can't even talk about it. It's We're recording this at 11.37 at night UK time. So I think that gives you a sense of how it's been. But... I'm so happy to be here. It is a new era for morning meeting and we're excited about it. A new era and I miss you. I'm getting used to the time shift already, although I'm very bad at math, but we've got a great show this week. We've got Errol Morris, we've got Jim Kelly, and we've got you coming to us from what neighborhood are you in again? Well, right now I'm in the basement of a hotel in South Kensington. Apparently my room is in the basement. Those are the charms of the Brits. Come on. That's the best four in the house. When you've hauled three 75-pound suitcases up and down these stairs, then we'll talk. <laughs> oh, it's great. No, it's been great. It's been really fun. One thing it's not. I mean, I know you're a huge fan of the show, The Rehearsal on HBO, but it might often, it probably seemed like it was something out of the rehearsal. You wish you had rehearsed your moving over there to the UK. There are many things I could have done differently, but I love this <laughs> show and I, I love Nathan Fielder because he gets to the heart of the absurdity of the human experience. It's, it's always been one of my favorites, but let's not listen to me yammer on about it because we have Errol Morris, the great documentarian, director, writer, and a writer at large for Airmail. He is here to tell us all about why this show resonates or doesn't with him. Welcome, Errol. Errol, welcome to the show. We're going to talk today about your story about Nathan Fielder's new show on HBO, The Rehearsal, which I find one of the most confounding and frightening shows around. So for those who haven't seen this show, it's about Nathan Fielder, and he helps people rehearse stressful situations in their life and before they do them. But if that's what he's doing, it's not really clear that that is what he's doing. He says he's, but you got me, if that really accurately represents what's going on here. Right. You say it's ostensibly offering his services to other and but you believe that he's kind of morphed into this weird kind of psychological experimentation with this show, right? No, if it's intentional or not. But certainly, I think that is the end result. Strange experiment. And it's not even clear what the experiment is, which makes it even more, for me, interesting. Is it important for us to understand what's going on? Oh, you tell me. I can't bear to watch this show because, to me, it's it's not just an experiment, but it's why I don't like shows about pranking people, right? Because I always feel some kind of sympathy for the subject. I feel these people are in the rehearsal. But they know what's going on, more or less, and have agreed to it, seemingly. (laughs) So why be sympathetic with them? I found myself at times liking it and disliking it and liking it again. And I found myself more or less out of sympathy with most of the characters. A couple of them, yes, the little kid who convinces himself that Nathan Fielder really is his father. Yeah, I was sympathetic with that kid. I couldn't really decide whether he was going to grow a mass murderer. I mentioned the Milgram experiment because 
Stanley Milgram, when he set up his experiments, the obedience to authority, part of the premise is like the premise of reality television. It's not so different, really. What get people to do before they say uncle or whatever people say in those situations? With Milgram, he's asking his test subjects to administer electric shocks. And the people who are wired up and are receiving these very doses of electricity are acting. They're acting when the experimenter tells the, the subject, let's give him a, a, a heavier dose of electricity. And you hear the subject seeming in supposed pain. What I found really interesting, yes, it's interesting that Stanley Milgram could get these ordinary people to stir supposed horrible electric shocks, express a moral concern. He just said, go ahead and do it. You hear me? Go ahead and administer the shock, okay? So the results of these studies seemingly is everybody's a Nazi. Everybody obeys authority. If authority is convincing enough or important enough, you obey authority, you administer the shocks, you torture people. And you follow orders, right? Just to back up, these were experiments that were done in the 60s, right? When Milgram was trying to understand how do people choose to willingly give themselves over to authoritarian power, right? It seems that they do it quite easily once they're told to, right? And you might say that those kinds of things of experiments are incredibly relevant nowadays. So part of you senses that there is a Milgramian effect at work here. Well, what was interesting about the Milgram experiments beyond just the experiments themselves is the aftermath. People got very angry at Milgram, and the argument was, this is indefensible. You can't do this to people. You can't use people as a, a means to your ends in such a depraved uh, fashion. So that became part of it anger at Milgram himself for actually having conducted these experiments. The, the moralists among us could look at the rehearsal and say, well, this is like the Milgram experiment, experiment going to have some kind of horrifying repercussions on the people who participated. I don't think I fall into that camp, fall more into the befuddled camp. Watching something that is the ultimate form of self-reflection, the people talk about the mise en abeam. The example often cited is the Hall of Mirrors in Citizen Kane, reflecting endlessly to infinity. Everything is a representation of itself and its opposite. You don't even know where reality lies anymore. You don't know where you stand with respect to reality. You don't know where the line, that line of demarcation between fantasy and reality lies. And in fact, there's a moment, it's one of my favorite moments, it's the sixth episode of the rehearsal, where Nathan Fair asks one of his actors, you know that this is pretend to you. It's almost as if he's asking himself, as well as the actor. And he gets a number of reassuring answers. Yes, I know that this is make-believe. But somehow he doesn't look satisfied, totally satisfied by the end. And I'm not sure we, the audience, or me as a member of the audience, is 
really reassured either. As you write in your essay this week, the show, as you say, succeeds in undermining everything, the belief in reality, even our belief in unreality. And you say that documentary seems to have now morphed from reporting to, as you say, a weird kind of psychological experimentation, right? For those of you at home who can't see the camera, Errol has a very happy grin on his face right now. Why are you grinning so merrily at that statement? Well, look, I like the rehearsal. I can't claim to understand it. I think there's a danger in claiming to understand it. But I really love and appreciate the risks that Nathan Fiedler is taking. I mean, they're insane kinds of risks. I sometimes think of the series as Nathan Fielder a hole for himself and then trying to find a way to extricate himself from that hole. But we know people are capable of anything. I mean, that's what reality TV, if anything, enforces of how credulous we are as a species, how easily cowed we are to believe or do anything, particularly if you add the possibility of being on television next. Right, where every director of a reality show becomes a Milgram, right? Of some kind or another, yes. He was way ahead of his time. Is there a documentary from the past 50 years or so, uh, excluding your own, that you think people should watch in these moments that would provoke some thought in people? Is there something that you've been recommending to people? There's always been this tension in documentary between this desire to document stuff reportage, journalism, however you want to describe it, and the desire to sink into the total surreal real of how odd the real world really is. Countless examples. I'm a fan of Fred Wiseman. Fred, actually, hopefully I'll get a chance to review it for Airmail as a new movie, a drama he's just created. You look at the Fred Wiseman film and you're entering into a lunatic world. I can't quite see it as straight reportage, even it involves extraordinary reporting. I always cite, I cite it to him as well, as being one of my favorite scenes in the the movie, is in a film he made called Zoo. It's about a zoo, and there's a scene where they are neutering, they're castrating a wolf, and there's a surgical team castrating the wolf, and you watch them, watch their labors, And it gradually becomes apparent that the team of castrators are all female. They're all all women castrators working on the wolf. And then there's one lone man in the scene. There's the janitor standing under the exit sign with his hand neatly folded over his crotch. And so... In this instance, this is a strange kind of hybrid. It is finding this, finding this, um, the ironic, the absurd, and the real, which is his great gift. And whether it's Sasha Baron Cohen, I remember so envious of Sasha Baron Cohen because he actually was creating a set of experiments in documentary. Yes, there's the experiment, how far people will go, how they will allow themselves to be used, and what are they willing to participate in. But it goes well beyond that. You're discovering something about how people see themselves, how they behave in what admittedly are extraordinary circumstances, but they are interesting circumstances. You've given us so much to think about. As always. Well, thank you for having me again. 
If Errol Morris were to make a documentary about Nathan Fielder, now there's an idea for you, Michael. Wow, there's super meta. Michael, did you read about the Harvey Weinstein news? Tell me. Yeah, well, uh, today he was granted the right to appeal his case in front of the state of New York. So he, as his attorney said, Harvey lives to fight another day. This move was denied by the appellate division back in June. But now it looks like he may be going back to trial, TBD. I mean, uh, just when we thought we had finally rid ourselves of Harvey Weinstein for good, here he comes again. Have you read the Jared Kushner book? No, I haven't. I've read the reviews of it. Have you? The reviews are so delicious. No, I haven't read it, but Alessandra Stanley, our co-editor, has, and she will be joining us on the show next week to talk all about it. So we're not going to get into it here and now, Michael, but it's going to be delicious. It's going to be delicious, almost as delicious as the Prince Harry memoir, which is also in the works, both of which have ghost writers. There was a ghost writer attached to the Jared Kushner book who sounded like she was, I looked her up and she was a 20-something who served in the administration, a true believer. Probably one reason it wasn't so well-written. Prince Harry's, the book was in the news this week because, number one, it's, it's reported as in the issue by George Kellis Rockers that the royal family is not going to take a look at it. They're not going to see it. They don't want to see it. But also, that's being written by J.R. Moringer, who wrote The Tender Bar. So that will at least probably be pretty well written. Yeah. Not as badly written from a language point of view as Jared Kushner's book is reported to be. Hoping that Harry's is at least as juicy. Something tells me it will be. Yeah. It'll be juicy, unlike his wife's debut on Spotify show this week, right? It's incredible for someone with so much profile, so few listeners. What's up with that? What's up with that? I thought it was terrible. It's so milk toast. Again, like you got to hire somebody with a real editorial vision to bring these things to life. Megan, we know a lot of people in media. We can point you in the direction of some unemployed or underemployed podcast people to make this thing really sparkle. But speaking of life in the White House and the Oval mm. Office, we have one of our favorite guests on this week, Jim Kelly, talking about a new book about Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And I guess it's quite a contrast to what we've just been talking about, life in the White House under Donald Trump. But Jim, as we all know, is our books editor, former managing editor of Time Magazine, and an all-around super great conversationalist. He's here now to tell us about the new book, Becoming FDR, The Personal Crisis That Made a President by Jonathan Darman, which is out now. Okay, Jim Kelly, back at it with another eight questions, this time for Jonathan Darman, who has a new biography about Franklin Delano Roosevelt and how polio prepared him not only for the presidency, but also prepared him for marital success. Who knew? Welcome, Jim. Thank you very much. Polio is back in the news. I mean, I'm joking with Jonathan that this is no publicist would have dared dream up this scenario. But given the case that appeared in New York and given the fact that in London, any child under the age of 12 is urged to get the polio vaccination. So the book is even timelier than you might imagine. Jonathan focused very, very much on the years between 1921 and 1933 when FDR did become president. And as much as I thought I knew about FDR, I learned so many new things from this book about just how much, how nearly FDR died in the summer of 1921 when he contracted polio from swimming, of all things, near his island retreat in Campobello. And then his struggle to regain the use of his legs, something that he never really gave up hope for 
until he ran for governor in 1928. And it's really a story not only of grit and determination, but it also taught FDR a huge amount of patience and empathy, which he didn't necessarily have in abundance before 1921. But he was pretty much a comer when he was stricken down with this disease. And thanks to his Harry Hopkins and others, they really hid from the public just how seriously debilitating this illness was. And as people know, when he was president, it wasn't widely, widely known that he could not walk, period, could not walk. And there were very few pictures of him shown in a wheelchair. This is something that no one could ever get away with today, obviously, if they were the president of the United States. Uh, Jim, FDR was 39 when he was stricken down with polo. And as you mentioned, he did run for the vice presidency in 1920. Was he already a known quantity as a public figure? Or how did that affect sort of his mentality going into this struggle? Well, that's an excellent question. He was a known quantity. He had been successful sub-cabinet official during Woodrow Wilson's days. The name Roosevelt obviously had tremendous magic still then. The families, Teddy Roosevelt and Franklin Roosevelt, never really got along, including after FDR became president. They just felt that he wasn't true Roosevelt stock. And as you know, he married a cousin, a second cousin or a third cousin, but in Eleanor. So he basically, he had the name recognition, which meant something even in the 1920s. He was a very successful governor, but I don't think FDR would have become president if there had not been a depression because Hoover, up until the depression, was a successful president. So as Ashley alluded to, Jim, Eleanor, and you just brought her up, his wife, she knew Prior to his contracting polio, he had had an affair with a woman named Lucy Mercer. Do you and do Darman think that the polio, his diagnosis, saved their marriage? And then how did it impact Eleanor's life in politics then? That's a very good question. I think she had discovered the romance between, she had suspected it, but had discovered the romance between Franklin and Lucy who had been her secretary, through some letters. And she basically wanted out of the marriage. But Franklin's mother interceded, and partly because a divorced politician was likely not to get into the White House, the marriage stayed together. But FDR's illness made him helpless and obviously stopped whatever gallivanting ways he had had. And suddenly he needed Eleanor desperately. So Eleanor swung into action and took very good care of him. But I can't help but think in reading Darman's book that Eleanor, on some level, was relieved that her husband now was tethered, in a sense, because he required so much medical care. It also allowed Eleanor to take on some of the duties of keeping the Roosevelt name alive politically. So she would travel the country in the 20s representing her husband, and she liked it. Jim, as I was reading this story, I couldn't help but be struck by the great ruse of FDR's so-called recovery from polio and something similar that we've seen going on in the White House today. I mean, not the same scale, obviously, but there have been so many reports about a weekend at Bernie's like experience with Joe Biden, (laughs) not just among the Fox News set. Did that parallel strike you at all or am I stretching? Well, A, it's a very interesting question. B, there might be a little bit of a stretch there. There have been other incidents with other presidents that their illnesses were kept private. I mean, 
no one really fully understood just how incapacitated Woodrow Wilson had been by his stroke and how much his aide, Colonel House, and Woodrow Wilson's wife, Edith, basically ran the country the last 18 months of Wilson's presidency. Look, those are different times. The press was less inquisitive, I suppose. There was a sense of privacy. There was not any kind of, you didn't have a bunch of reporters standing on the White House lawn reporting live, and the president's schedule wasn't published the way it is today. In the case of Mr. Biden, he's old. There's no getting around it. But the plus side is I don't think you can count on more than one hand the incidents of wackiness, non sequiturs, and just general looniness that his predecessor, Donald Trump, displayed. So a president who is working at 80% of his faculties that he had five years ago, as opposed to a president working 110% of his faculties, many of them quite nutty, I think I might take the 80% president over the other one. Jim, there have been many books written about FDR. Where does this stand in that of for you? It's a refreshing to read so much about the personal struggles and travails of a president facing the kind of crisis he did before he became president that shaped the man that we came to know as FDR. Most books don't do that. But the way Jonathan puts things together is really quite artful. His previous book was about Lyndon Johnson and Ronald Reagan. And the argument basically was that it's Lyndon Johnson made Ronald Reagan inevitable, even though obviously Johnson left office in 69 and Reagan took office in 81. But it has such a great opening scene. And it starts on the morning of November 22nd, 1963, in which, and people forget this, Lyndon Johnson was wasn't sure he'd be on the ticket again in 64. He was facing many inquiries into his relationship with a lobbyist named Bobby Baker. And he basically was kind of waddling into history on the morning of the 22nd. Meanwhile, in California, Ronald Reagan, whose better days as an actor were behind him, was playing in a very rare role, the bad guy, in a movie in which he starred with Angie Dickinson and an up-and-coming actor that everyone was talking about named Lee Marvin. And on the set that day, and it was an exterior shot, Angie Dickinson learned about the death of John Kennedy. They knew each other. How they knew each other, in what way, I'm not going to speculate. But the production shut down, and Ronald Reagan was basically so much a lost an actor, faded actor, that he soon took up being the spokesperson for General Electric, which is not usually the role to the White House. But he describes that day with such wonderful detail that I'm not surprised that he finds different ways to set scenes in Roosevelt's struggle with polio. The book is called Becoming FDR, The Personal Crisis That Made a President by Jonathan Darman. Is there anything else you'd like to add? No, other than the book is so good, I actually bought several copies to give to friends. And needless to say, as the book's editor of Airmail, I don't need to buy a lot of books. So I highly recommend this one. It is well worth it. Well, Jim, thank you for being here. Thanks for always giving us an illuminating conversation about books. We hope to see you back here soon. In the meantime, I release you to your mantra, And Border Collie. <laughs> and Border Collie. Thanks, Jim. We'll talk okay. to you soon. Thank you very much. 
A magical man, a magical president, a magical interpretation by our own Jim Kelly. You know what's pretty magical? Also, speaking of writers, we've got this great story this week by Lucy Worsley, who is a British historian and author, and has a new book out, Agatha Christie, An Elusive Woman. Now, I didn't even realize this. Do you know who the world's best-selling author is? Most Sold the most books? Let me guess. It's not Danielle Steele. It's Agatha Christie. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Anyway, everyone always kinds of thinks, at least I did, and I think many people, that she was this old woman who sort of led this quiet life and just almost like her character, Miss Marple, and then she just sort of sat in a little cottage and wrote mysteries. Well, as Lucy Worsley notes in her Inside Story column this week about the making of her book and the writing of the book, Christie, in fact, led this very dramatic life. Then she went to Iraq in the 20s where she met the great love of her life, an archaeologist named Max Mallow. And in the years to come, they made these annual trips to Iraq and Syria, and she lived on site with the archaeological team where they did all the excavations. And that's when she'd write the books. And so she lived this very adventurous, colorful life, quite in contrast to what you think her life was. So it's a fascinating column by the writer of this new biography, Agatha Christie, An Elusive Woman. On a dramatically different note. Yes, dear. Should we talk about this strangler in Nantucket? I mean, this is weird. This is like, it's weird, but not surprising. Rich people in fancy little hamlets misbehaving, right? It's not even rich people behaving badly. It's rich people behaving criminally. Yeah. So will you set this up? Because you have a handle for rich people behaving badly. So there's a gentleman named John Arundel. He's a divorcee from Washington, and he, on August 16th, he went to a rather boozy dinner at Crew Restaurant. If you've been to Nantucket, you've been to Crew. And he attended it with a woman named Gilda Villala, who was his girlfriend of all of two weeks. By the end of the night, police were called to this guy's rental house. Villala told police that she had been strangled by Arundel. And then there were two corroborating witnesses that were some other people who had been there. This guy was arrested on the spot. He denies the accusations. But it's totally fascinating because Arundel is somewhat of a mover and shaker in Washington. For over a decade, he was the associate publisher of a D.C. society magazine called Washington Life, which means little to those of us outside of D.C., but it's relatively important to those on the circuit. He was somewhat of a mover and a shaker. He liked to have his picture taken. He profiled Donald Trump. He also worked in PR a little bit, and he even was named the uh, CEO of Perticus Communications, who had, you know, some fairly well-known clients, including Fox News. But his life took a very bizarre turn in 2020. That March, his ex-wife reported their 17-year-old son to the missing and exploiting children, alleging that Arundel had kidnapped him. Arundel has a different take on the story, but it's a totally fascinating look at a relatively bizarre character who seems to have gone a little bit unhinged. A lot of people... You hear Nantucket and you think, oh, it must be just a bunch of wealthy old wasps who just sort of wear their pants with lobsters on them and walk around and eat ice cream. But as Clara Malo points out in her story this week, visitors there, which has become Washington, D.C.'s favorite vacation spot, have long been known to see the island as an escape from reality responsibility and sometimes even their spouses. In fact, part-time resident told her that the island is like Las Vegas, but with whales, while the daughter of a state trooper said she refers to the island as not Nantucket, but non-Vegas. Among the DC set, it's kind of seen as a place where the bad behavior can be indulged. (laughs) 
I mean, love, it's complicated, right? It's messy no matter where you find it. I mean, we have another story in the issue with Jane Birkin talking about her affair with Serge Gansborg, which I thought I had already read everything there was to know about that period in her life. But it turns out there are a couple salacious details that she had yet to share. And we've got them in the issue for you. So if you want to hear about Jane Birkin's sex life, let us direct you to this story. I was most intrigued to learn that she has Birkin bags named for her, but she only likes them when they're black and very simple. She doesn't like all these crazy purple alligator ones now that you see or all these crazy things that go on. It's very French, very chic, very just simple. Anything else? Yeah, one little tip, Michael. And for our listener, I know you're heading to Italy tomorrow for vacation. We're going to miss you terribly, but I'm happy to have you over here closer to me. Those of you who are in France or going to France, we have a marvelous story in the issue from Yolanda Edwards. She's the editor of YOLO Journal and a chronic globetrotter, but she has a guide to the best flea markets in France. Now, this is something that I care about perhaps more than most, but I found it a great story full of very actionable tips to help ensure that you come home with some real souvenirs that are not the kind of things that everyone else is going to end up with. I know. I thought of you. I thought you could just, you should just take the train over there, load up the boot of the car and, you know, you can furnish the house. You're all set. Maybe even find a Birkin bag. Fingers crossed. Wouldn't that be a coup? Fingers crossed. All right, Michael, before we go off into that good weekend, do you have anything at all you can recommend to us? Speaking of France, I have a small sort of pleasurable film to watch, which was recommended to me by Graydon. And it is French themed. It's called Eiffel, not like Eiffel, but like the Eiffel Tower, where you can probably see when you go to France. And it is a retelling of how Eiffel came to design the tower. It's inspired by the truth and it sort of takes some liberties with it, but it basically gets into the love story behind Eiffel and his long lost love, a woman named Adrienne, who is said to have inspired the tower and in fact is the reason why the tower has its distinctive shape in the shape of an A for Adrienne. So it stars Romain Dury and Emma Mackey. You can watch it on Apple TV. You can buy it now on Apple TV. Thank you so much. Okay, Michael, I wish you the most wonderful trip to Italy. I'm going to miss you and I can't wait to hear all about it. We'll be on the same time zone. I'm going to let you go because it's past midnight there now. After midnight. (laughs) Thank you all so much for joining us. Someone's getting punchy. Hello, I'm hallucinating. Okay, thank you all for joining us. We wish you a wonderful weekend. We'll see you right back here next week for another episode of Morning Meeting and another issue of Airmail. Michael, please read us out. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, and Julie Vitelli. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Collect Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music. But most of all, thank you again for joining us.